covenant between God and every living creature that is on that has flesh on the earth, but it is also for every future generation. And that's, in, that's, that's very, very important because this covenant was not just for Noah and his sons and his generation, but this covenant was never ending and it was for all future generations. Very important for you and me today because that includes who? That includes us. Here we are today in Bartlett, Tennessee. And this covenant that was established over 4,000 years ago still applies to you and to me today because it was for all future generations because we ultimately are descendants. Listen, and I'm going to get into this more when we talk about the Tower of Babel and we talk about the Table of Nations. I'm very, very excited about this because it is so, so appropriate to what we're seeing in our culture today. But let me tell you something. Race is not a biblical issue. Race is not a biblical idea. The only race that the Bible talks about us belonging to is the what? The human race. We are the, the race of Adam. We're all descendants of Adam with different skin tones, different shades of skin tones, maybe a few different physical features here and there, but we are all of one race. And if you believe that from a biblical perspective, it completely destroys any idea of racial prejudice. But if we look at what's happening here to all future generations that receive the promise of Noah, the promise of the covenant, the everlasting covenant, it is for all future generations. And that includes you and me because we are descendants of Noah. If you're alive on the face of the earth today, you're a descendant of Adam. And then by, by default, by Noah or one of his three sons. And so we trace our genetic lineage, our genetic heritage back to Noah and his three sons. And so here we are today. This covenant is for you and it is for me. And this is a very appropriate time for the Lord to make a, a, a covenant, a new covenant with the human race. Because it is following the most universal judgment of mankind and what we saw in the flood and the extent of the flood is really unimaginable when we, we really have a hard, I have a hard time comprehending the extent of the global flood that all flesh destroyed and perished, was destroyed and perished in the flood. Every living thing with breath in its nostrils. And so the Lord started over here with Noah and with all mankind by making a universal, never-ending covenant to all generations. Well, what is a covenant? A covenant is a good faith promise between two or more parties. There's a lot of different words you could use for covenant, but ultimately it is necessary in order for really any relationship to exist there has to be some form of a covenant, some form of an alliance, some form of an agreement, some form of a reconciliation, a partnership between two or more parties. And here's the thing. In a covenant, two parties, two or more parties, they give their word. They pledge their promise to each other, and they are supposed to be held accountable to their word and to their promise. Now, it's interesting when you start looking at covenants in the Bible, especially some covenants in general are conditional covenants. They're conditional. Uh, they're mutually binding. What do I mean by that? It's very important that we, we draw this distinction. Some covenants are mutually binding, meaning that both parties who are involved in this contract or in this promise, they are both expected to hold up their end of the bargain. Let me give you an example. Marriage is a mutually binding covenant. In those marriage vows, 
when a husband and a wife come together to make their vows to each other before God and those witnesses, it is their, their word, their good faith promise that they both will uphold their end of the, of the deal, of the, of the covenant. But there are other covenants that are unconditional and what I would call a unilateral covenant. In, in, in other words, what it means is that there are many covenants. As a matter of fact, as we'll see in just a moment, most of the covenants in the scripture are unconditional, unilateral covenants that were only one end of the party, only one party that's participating in the covenant has made a promise to uphold their end of the bargain. Let me give you a good practical example of a unconditional unilateral covenant, adoption. I think about adoption because you know that many children who are adopted into a home, they, they receive the family name and that family, when they adopt that child, has made a good faith promise that they will never again reject that child. And many times when a child is adopted into a family, they're even too young to even understand what's going on. So did they have any real role in that adoption covenant? No, it was unilateral. It was unconditional. It was, it was two parents saying, we will bring you in and love you as our own, and you don't even really even know what's going on yet, but we've made a promise and a commitment to you, and that's a picture of an unconditional, unilateral covenant. And it's interesting that the Bible talks about covenant in these ways. Most of the biblical covenants are unconditional and unilateral, meaning that God promises to keep his word. Listen, whether we are faithful or not. It's fascinating. Paul told Tim, uh, Timothy this. He said, this saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But listen to this. But if we are faithless, he remains Faithful because he cannot deny himself. That is the foundation of biblical covenant. Because, you know, when we read the Old Testament, and especially when you start reading about the nation of Israel, and we'll talk about the Mosaic Covenant in just a minute. I mean, they, they just blew it, right? Over and over and over and over again. I mean, it's like the period of the judges, you know? It's just this vicious cycle of, faithfulness, obedience, and they would turn away from God and then they would be given over to their enemies because of the, the conditions of the covenant and then they would cry out for God to save them and he would send a deliverer to save them and then they would be okay for about 20 years and they do what? Go right back in the same cycle of sin and rebellion. You know, and we look at Israel like, man, those were some hard-headed, stubborn people, right? So is the church. We're no different, are we? We wake up and God's mercies are new every single day. Every single morning. We have to have his mercies new every morning because we are a stubborn, rebellious group. We are. But that's the foundation of covenant here. And let me just give you the major, the primary covenants in the Bible because this is the first time really that the idea of covenant is mentioned in the scriptures. Some would debate whether or not there were some covenants beforehand to Adam and, and so forth. But I think this is the first time in scripture that we really have a clearly established Covenant of God, which is the covenant he made to Noah and every future generation. But let's talk about a few more real quick. There's the Abrahamic covenant. And as you notice that when we talk about these covenants, God made specific agreements and contracts and commitments to these 
kind of these heroes of our faith, and Abraham is really the first one. When God came to Abraham, he made an unconditional, unilateral, and everlasting covenant to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants after him. What was the Abrahamic covenant? Let me give you a couple of thoughts about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, it, it, it applies both to the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We'll talk about that more in just a second. And this is what God said. He said, Abraham, I will make you, I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. You're going to be a people for my own possession. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I'm going to give you a land. And ultimately, I'm going to give you a Messiah, the seed of Abraham, who would accomplish all of this that I just promised to you. So Jesus, and if you read the genealogies of Jesus, if you open up the Bible to Matthew chapter 1, and it says these are the genealogies of Jesus, he was the son of Abraham. First person that's mentioned, he was the descendant of who? Abraham. Why is that important? Because God made a promise to Abraham that only Jesus could ultimately fulfill. Then you have the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David, with King David. Again, an unconditional, unilateral covenant. Very important that we understand this. And so God came to David. David really didn't have anything uh, to do with this. He said, David, I'm going to make a promise to you that you will have a descendant on your throne forever. And that your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Again, read the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. He was the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why is that important? Because only Jesus came as the son of David to fulfill the promise and the unconditional covenant that God made to David, which was there would be a king on the throne forever, and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, and we want to be participants in that kingdom, correct? So you've got the Davidic covenant, you've got the Abrahamic covenant, then the, the, the next main covenant in the scripture that is an unconditional covenant is the new covenant. And we know the new covenant because we know Jesus in the, in the Lord's Supper, he instituted that, he said, this is the new covenant of my blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was helping his disciples understand that I'm going to the cross, I'm going to shed my blood on your behalf, take your place on the cross so you can be forgiven, and then you're going to have a new way to relate to God through me, which is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's where Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Old Testament prophets, told us there would be a new way that God would relate to us through a new and living covenant. And that covenant is this. He says, I will put my spirit in you and I will give you a new what? A new heart. So that all the laws and regulations and requirements that you never could obey and keep as the children of Israel, I will be able to give you the ability to obey me and love me and serve me because I'm going to give you a brand new heart and put my spirit in you. That's the only way we can truly please God and live in faith is with the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. Then you have the Mosaic covenant, which was a conditional covenant. Very distinct in the way that God related to his people, Israel, because the reason the Mosaic Covenant is different is because it goes like this. Okay, people, if you do this, then I will what? Do this. But if you do not obey, then you will suffer the consequences. 
And that's the story in the history of Israel that in, the, in their rebellion and their disobedience to God, they were cast out of the land. They were oppressed by their enemies. They suffered great distress historically because they did not keep their end of the bargain. And the Lord told them, this is what would happen if you don't. There is one condition, if there is any condition on our part to participate in the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant, there is really one condition, and that condition is faith. The only way that we will participate in those covenants is if we have what? We have faith. Why is that? Well, because it's impossible to please God without faith. We are saved by grace through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We become heirs and sons of the promised children of Abraham through faith. Faith is the key. Faith is the one responsibility, the one requirement, the one condition that we have to participate and enjoy the blessings and the promises of these covenants. And so now we have the Noahic covenant, which is the covenant that God made with Noah. And so let's talk a little bit more about what this covenant is all about. God made a promise to Noah and to all descendants of mankind, again, that was unconditional, universal, and everlasting. God, what was the promise? God promised never to destroy the earth again by means of a global flood. Very clear promise, very cut and dry. So there was a totality to the flood, the universal destruction of the flood. And, and again, I said this a few weeks ago, and I just need to echo it again this morning. This is the primary reason why I reject any notion that the flood in Noah's day was somehow localized. It, like, and again, the reason I say that, you would be surprised how many people in the church try to believe and teach that Noah's flood was not global, that it did not cover the whole earth. They say it was only a local, maybe a regional flood that only involved the people that were alive in that region or that territory of his day. That is not true, because if that is true, then we must come to grips with this. Remember, what did God say? He says, I make a promise I'm making a covenant with all future generations. It's an everlasting covenant that I will never destroy the earth again with a what? Well, have we had more floods since Noah's day, local floods? Have we had regional floods since Noah's day? So if it was a local flood and a regional flood that God was talking about, then he is a liar because he promised never to do that again. And yet we have local and regional floods all the time. But we've never had another what? Global flood. That was God's promise. Never will the entire globe be destroyed by water again. That's how the covenant and the promise of God is given. So we have to understand that it was global. Next, let's talk about the sign of the covenant. The rainbow is the sign to the whole world that he will keep his promise. That God will keep his promise. Now, rainbows are really fascinating. Let's talk about the, the physics of rainbows for just a second. So how, how does a rainbow form? You know, let's try to explain it rationally, okay, scientifically. So what is the purest form of light? What color is the purest form of light? White. White light. The sunlight. Coming off the sun, purest form of radiation coming off is white light. 
So they say this is how a rainbow forms. A, a, a light beam, purely white, has to go through some type of a prism. And as it goes through that prism, the light is bent. It's, re, it's called refraction. The light is bent, and when that light is bent, it's broken up into different wavelengths. And the way that light is created by God is that the, according to the different wavelengths of light, it gives off a different what? A different color. Red at one end of the spectrum and blue or violet at the other end of the spectrum. And so they, they, they operate at different wavelengths. So when that white light passes through a prism, in this case with the rainbow, it has to do with water droplets. So water droplets become little bitty tiny prisms. And when the light goes through those tiny prisms at just the right angle and we're in just the right position to see it, it creates this beautiful display of the color spectrum. Now I'm going to bring you back a little bit. Who remembers Roy Biv? Roy G. Biv? Anybody in the house? Red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, violet. I, I missed green, didn't I? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. So it's, a, it's an acronym that we learned in school to remember the different colors of the spectrum of light. And so that's what you see when you see a rainbow. It's this beautiful display of the spectrum of light. The rainbow is intangible. It's not like you can go up and touch it. There certainly is no gold at the end of it. I promise you that. We can't get to the end of a rainbow. And you know what's fascinating is I began to read about this. Rainbows are actually complete circles. If you're in an airplane, sometimes you can see rainbows and they are perfectly symmetrical circle. The only reason we can see half of the circle is because of the horizon and the, and the landscape that is in front of us. So we only usually see the semicircle. Fascinating. And so these scientists and, and um, man can try to do everything that he can to explain what a rainbow is and how it is formed. And, and those things are very cool. And I'm interested in those things. But like all wonders of God's creation, we are very limited in our knowledge of fully comprehending the glory of God. So we cannot tell you why rainbows exist and what they mean apart from God's word. Let me say that again. There's no way we can tell you why rainbows exist and more importantly, what they actually mean because they mean something unless we have God's word. Now, this is what's so amazing about a rainbow. You think about it. This is this beautiful display, this work of art that God himself paints in the sky to remind us that he is God. And he's still here. And he sees. And beyond that, he what? He knows, and he has not forgotten us. It's also a symbol of his love. He loves us. He is faithful. He is good. He keeps his what? He keeps his word and his promise. Guys, you know what? Every time you see a rainbow, you should probably stop and be in awe, not of the rainbow, but be in awe of God. Think about it. Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, it's God's own signature to the promise that he made over 4,000 years ago. It is a public testimony. It's like a living witness. It's like this billboard in the sky. It's like a banner in the heavens that is telling us and communicating to us, I'm still here. I'm still God. I keep my word. I keep my promise. I have not forgotten. That's what a rainbow is. And so as covenants are often accompanied by different signs, we see here in the scriptures that the rainbow is the sign. It's the symbol of God's promise and covenant 
that he has made with us and made with mankind. But as I said before in our worship set, what's even more amazing and significant to me about the rainbow is that when you look at the heavenly throne room of God, we have glimpses of this through scripture. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what the heavenly throne room of God even is all about. But because of John and people like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they have seen, they've been given glimpses into this heavenly throne room of God. And when we read the scriptures about the heavenly throne room of God, interestingly enough, what do we find there? A rainbow. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel was given this vision. Ezekiel 1, 26. And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what he Excuse me, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, is what was the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. And like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. So Ezekiel sees this throne room picture and he says, the best way I can explain it to you that it was such a bright, glorious picture, but there was the rainbow there. All the different colors of the spectrum are just radiantly shining around the throne room of God. John saw something similar in Revelation chapter 4. He says, at once I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Revelation 4, 2 and 3. So Ezekiel, John, they saw the same thing. They're seeing something magnificent. They're seeing something glorious. And listen, this is what you need to understand and why I'm bringing this up is because the rainbow is just not some cutesy sign or symbol that we think is beautiful and lovely. No, the rainbow is directly associated with and connected to the glory, power, and holiness of Almighty God. Because if we are ever, ever to, to experience His holiness and the fullness of His glory, we would be just like John and just like Ezekiel. We would fall down like what? Dead men. Because of how holy God is. In Genesis 9, 13, you read over things like this, but you don't want to miss it. The Lord says, I have set my bow in the clouds. Catch that? Whose is it? It's his. He made it. He defines it. He gives it purpose. He gives it meaning. It's his bow. And so let's talk real quick about what the rainbow should mean and what it really does mean. So the thing that I want to share with you next is this. The rainbow is a symbol both of justice and mercy. 
And this is why we should stop in our tracks and be in awe of Almighty God when we do see a rainbow because it should remind us of two things. God is a holy God. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. He will by no means clear the wicked. He will not leave sin unpunished. His eyes are too pure to look upon sin. This is who God is. On the other hand, God is a merciful God who has patience and compassion, and he has demonstrated great lengths of his love towards sinners so that he doesn't just immediately strike us and consume us like we deserve because he is also merciful. And when you see a rainbow, you're seeing both a symbol and a sign of God's justice because it's a reminder that, listen, the flood is a historical event that really happened. God really destroyed the whole earth. Let me say that again. The creator of the universe destroyed his creation. Totally. Except Noah and his family. That's nothing to play around with, guys. That's God's justice. You know what the definition of justice is? It's that we get what we deserve. But also... It is a symbol of God's mercy, and this is why. It's because God said, I will never do that again when it comes to flooding the whole earth. When it comes to flooding the whole earth, I will never do that again. But don't presume upon my grace and mercy. In other words, don't take advantage of the fact that I am slow to keeping my promise as some count slowness. Don't take advantage of the fact that I'm patient and merciful with you because his patience is only for the purpose to lead us to what? Repentance. And yet you have an entire world that presumes upon God's grace, presumes upon God's mercy, tries to take advantage of the life that they have with no regard for God because here's the thing that he reminded us, no, I'll never flood the earth again. No, I'll never destroy the whole earth again by water. By water. But I am coming again on the day of the Lord to judge the living and the dead by fire. So every time we see a rainbow, it should remind us of both God's justice and his mercy. Because everyone who has rejected God, who mocks God, who ignores God, who gives him lip service, who's rebelled against him, who refuses to believe in him, they will be targeted. They will be the direct objects of his justice and his wrath and judgment and power and glory when the Lord Jesus comes on that day. And I'm telling you something, guys. You don't hear preachers preaching it much anymore because it's uncomfortable. Nobody likes to talk about the wrath and the judgment of God, but it is real. It is biblical. It is part of the gospel. We cannot neglect the justice and the wrath of God for the extent of the, of the grace and the love of God. Amen. It's both and. Revelation says that when the Lord comes in his glory, it says all the people of the earth will be trying to hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And so we see what the rainbow really represents. And that's why I'm compelled this morning to tell you that the rainbow has been hijacked. Rainbow's been hijacked 
rainbow's been hijacked by a corrupt and a rebellious generation, and it's been redefined and repurposed as a symbol to do nothing more than celebrate sexual immorality and sexual perversion. I'm going to tell you something, guys. We should be, we should have a, a level of righteous anger about this. Because the Bible tells us clearly what the rainbow was and who made it and what God's purpose for it was. And every time that we see it, how we should stand in all the holy God, but we live in a generation in a culture now, think about it, there's an entire generation that has grown up in our world and in our culture that has no idea what that rainbow in the sky has anything to do with God and his mercy and his justice, but it has been repurposed and redefined to do nothing more than be a symbol and a sign for gay pride. You're getting uncomfortable, aren't you? The reason I know you're getting uncomfortable is because we've been so desensitized and we've been reconditioned to never speak out about this one issue. Now let's think about that word for just a second. Gay pride. It means that we're proud to be sinners. Do we have an adulterer pride movement? Seriously. Do we have a liar pride movement or a thieving or a rapist pride movement or a crook pride movement? Do we have a murderer pride movement? No, we have a what? A gay pride movement. And the reason that this is such an important issue, guys, and the thing that I'm really trying to get at here is that we have lost the, the true identity and meaning of the rainbow, and it's been hijacked by the LGBTA plus community, and it is a symbol now of gay pride, not God's promise. And there is a big, big problem with that. And the biggest problem with that is, is that every single word that is used to blaspheme God and to reject God's authority and his word and his purpose for sexuality and purity and the family and all those kind of things, the very breath that is being used in our culture today to reject God was to them by God. He provides the very breath that people use to blaspheme him. That's mercy. Think about that for a minute. So we've got to reclaim the true meaning of the rainbow. And listen, the rainbow involves, involves both God's warning of judgment, but also God's message of mercy and love. And so we're going to get to that here in just a second. But here's the reason that this is a unique issue. What makes, what makes homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality, listen to me, because some of you have already shut me off, right? Already know. You're just like, he's gone too far. Listen to me. What makes the sin of homosexuality different? This is the big question that I have. And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, and I just want you to stay with me for just a second, okay? Number one, 
The reason that homosexuality is different from a biblical perspective is because it is a gross violation of God's created order and the laws of nature. Biologically speaking, it does not work. We get that, right? You cannot procreate through a homosexual union. It's impossible. It's biologically impossible. So there are only two genders. There's male, there's female. That's it. That's biology. And it's scripture, but it's biology. And so we understand this is when we, when we start celebrating all of these alternative lifestyles and talk about inclusion through the rainbow, what we're doing is we're celebrating something that is a gross violation of the created order that God has established. Number two, it destroys marriage. The first institution that God created was the institution of what? Marriage. He did that for a reason because marriage is the bedrock and the foundation of every single part of society. When the family begins to break down, everything else begins to break down. Well, let me tell you something. Redefining marriage is a destructive way to destroy the entire culture and society. This is why it's different. Number three, it's an abomination. That word means it makes God sick. Look, guys, I'm going to tell you something. Not all sins are the same. They're not. There's different consequences for different sins. Yes, we're all sinners, but only certain sins are in a what? An abomination to God. It makes him sick. And fourthly, the Bible says that there is a due penalty in the flesh for this particular type of sin. And when it comes to this particular type of lifestyle, it does. It just destroys the person physically. AIDS, cancer, Suicide rates, all these kind of things are connected to the homosexual lifestyle. Now listen, those are just some practical reasons, but let me get down to the real deal here. The reason that homosexuality is different is because they make it different. I didn't come, I didn't pick a fight with the LGBT community. As far as I'm concerned, everybody from the beginning of time has been able to practice homosexuality anytime that they want to. Am I not right? Did nobody go around saying you can't be homosexual? But they won't allow us to live and let live. They take the fight to us. And they say, we will not stop and we are not going to be satisfied. LGBTQA+, whatever the acronym stands for these days. He says, we will not stop and we will not be satisfied. Not until you let us do what we want to do, but you've got to agree with it. You've got to rejoice with us. You've got to celebrate it. And you've got to tell us that it's good. That's what's happening in our culture. They have brought the fight to us. And they're pushing the envelope further and further and further. And let me tell you something. You know what the church has done? We back down. We back down. We back down. We compromise. What if LGBT stood for liars, gamblers, blasphemers, and thieves? Would we be celebrating that group? No, why? Because those are what? Sins. But the reason that we have backed down and compromised in the church is because we have allowed a culture to tell us that LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and everything else in between, which is coming to pedophilia and bestiality and every other type of sexual immorality, is that they are wanting us to not just say live and let live. They're wanting us to say it's not a sin. That's the problem. And if you're going to try to tell me that I have to say that it's not a sin, I can't do that because my Bible doesn't let me. 
Guys, I didn't go picking a fight. They're bringing the fight to us. And we have been so desensitized and we've been so preconditioned to think that the worst thing in the world that you can be is a what? A homophobe. I'm not homophobic. I'm not afraid of a person who's living a gay lifestyle. But if they want me to tell them that it's okay and that what they're doing is right and good and I'm going to celebrate and, and march under the gay pride banner with them, can't do it. Can't do it. Let the word speak for itself. I could, I could, I could preach. I could preach about this, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay here for just a second because we need to hear what the Bible says and quit hearing what I say. But listen to what it says in Romans chapter one, Romans one sixteen. Now just, just, just listen to what Paul says and tell me if this does not describe and define our culture today. You ready? Romans one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the first for the Jew and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Sound familiar? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what they can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Notice that there is a connection to believing in creation and believing in sexual purity. In the design for sexuality that God has created for us. Notice that. He says, from the, from the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. If that does not describe our culture today, I don't know what is. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, listen to what he says. Therefore, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the problem, is that we don't want God to tell us what to do and how to live and who we're supposed to be. We want to make that call. Sinful people want to say, no, I deny you, creator. I'm going to worship the created thing. In other words, I'm going to worship myself. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. There you have homosexuality, lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Amen. Now listen, you got you to stay with me. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is where we are right now is that for some reason the LGBT movement is the only movement that wants the entire culture to give them what? Approval for their sinful lifestyles that deserve death. That's what makes homosexuality different. And that's where we're living right now. In a culture that will not stop until everybody who once was in the closet will not stop until those who disagree with them are put back into their own closet. Because they got to keep us silent, shut us down, culture, whatever you want to call it. Intimidation, character, assassination. I'm just waiting for the day, guys. It's coming. It may happen right after this sermon. Just look for it. Marcus Van Every. Let's, let's assassinate his character because he's preaching the truth. I didn't pick this fight. Now I got to say one more thing. Because I, I could go all day about reasons and statistics and, you know, all the, the arguments for that, that they try to give us about, you know, gay genes, born that way, whatever. I mean, we don't have time to get into all that. But here's the last thing I'm going to say. The only way we as a church will reclaim the rainbow and its true meaning is through the meaning of another symbol, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's the wonderful thing about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the cross, at the cross, there's level ground. So no matter what kind of a lifestyle or sinful struggle or burden or bondage or or hang up or habit or whatever it is that you might have. You know, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is the message of hope for all sinners because it says that no one has drifted too far for the Lord to save them. No one has had a heart that's been hardened so hard that the Lord can't heal that heart. No one has a sin so bad that the Lord can't love them and bring them back into relationship with Himself. Listen, guys, the cross of Jesus Christ is the message that the world must hear because only the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that there is a way that God satisfied both his justice and he is allowed to give mercy and grace at the same time. That's what the cross is all about. The cross, there's a reason that the cross is an intersection. There's a vertical beam and there's a horizontal beam. Why is that important? Because at the cross, God's mercy and his justice converge and they both are met and both are satisfied right there at the cross because Jesus, he took the punishment that we deserve. For all sin. The justice of God was served. The wrath of God was poured out on who? On Jesus. That's what makes him able to turn around and offer us forgiveness. So that on one hand, justice is served. On the other hand, mercy and forgiveness can be offered to sinners like you and me. Guys, I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. 
I'm not, I'm not up here saying that I'm any better than anybody else. And that's one of the biggest struggles with the LGBT community and the problem that we have. And I've got to say this one last thing because this is very, very, very important. Listen to me. How we stand against the agenda that has been shoved down our throat for years now is one thing. We've got to stand against this agenda. But how do we treat individuals? With love. The way Jesus would treat an individual. And that's where we get into trouble is because people want to take the agenda and the individual and say, well, if you stand against LGBT rights, then you hate gay people. And they want to put us in that camp. There can be nothing further than the truth. I can stand up against what I see to be wrong with our culture and this immoral movement that's being shoved down our throats. And at the very same time, I can love someone who may be embracing that kind of a lifestyle. There's no contradiction. So we've got to always keep that in mind. We've got to reclaim the rainbow. And the only way we'll reclaim the rainbow is by preaching the cross. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up and we're going to sing a song. And the song is break our hearts. Now, as they're coming up, let me just let me just say this to you because there's so many of you out here and here's the situation. You have loved ones. You have brothers and sisters and family and children who are struggling with this particular sin. And you're wrestling with this and you're and you're battling this because you know what's right and you know that it, you cannot support and approve and celebrate that kind of a lifestyle. But as a parent or a, a sibling or a, 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 a family member or whoever it may be, you're saying, how can I still love this person without at the same time telling them that I approve of their lifestyle and the things that they're, 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 that they're doing and that they've chosen? So I understand this is not a simple cut and dry issue. For some of you, it's a real deal, heart-wrenching, very difficult thing to deal with, okay? And the only thing I can say to you about that is that God is going to have to help you and give you wisdom to know when to speak and when to listen and how far to go when it comes to support and those kind of things. Listen, those are very difficult situations that require a tremendous amount of wisdom. I understand that. But at some point, we've got to draw the what? We've got to draw the line. And Christians, be very careful not to start stepping across that line. Be very careful. Guys, we need the Spirit to break our hearts. Let's sing that together. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, every time we see a rainbow, we should know what it means, why you gave it, who you are. But Father, more than that, every time we see the cross, we should fall down, Lord, overwhelmed at how you could love a sinner like me. And the hope of this world is the, is the gospel of Jesus. And so my hope and my prayer for the church, Lord, is that we would be able to stand firm and not compromise the truth and the sound doctrine of Scripture, to stand against the godless agendas that are being pushed on us constantly in our culture. 
but as, as followers of Jesus, that we can love people, love our neighbor, love individuals, share the good news of the gospel with people one-on-one, and help them to know that we do really care about them because God cares about them. That you love them, Lord. You love them so much that you want to bring everybody into a relationship with your son. Break our hearts, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name.